Hi, this is Saka Brahman from the OrthoClubs podcast series, and today I'm going to be reviewing the highlights from the Orthopedic Trauma Association 37th Annual Meeting, which took place October 20th to 23rd in Fort Worth, Texas. So the main meeting actually opened up uh, with a symposium entitled, How Can the OTA Support Your Well-Being? Uh, a panel discussion and town hall on sustaining your career via advocacy, leadership, and wellness. So this is nice to see the um, meeting open up, um, discussing uh, a hot topic. Um, There's actually an OTA task force on moral injury advocacy and membership well-being uh, that uh, Dr. Matthew Garner uh, opened up to uh, discuss first and introduce the members to this. Um, Several um, of the uh, course faculty uh, gave presentation on how we can measure wellness and well-being um and how to advocate for wellness the keynote was by um dr preston klein who's a uh, doctor of education and um, he brought up a lot of good points uh, especially how to process experiences and he brought up this concept of um, residue and uh, how we have to learn to process the residue of prior experiences um and that um you know, whereas we have a very good system of rescuing patients and treating urgent medical conditions, uh, we don't really have a good system of rescuing the docs, right? The doctors. I mean, what happens when one of us fall into a hole and uh, need to be dug out, right? Um, so I know one of the things he mentioned was to uh, invest in your family because they're the ones who are going to know you the best and how to dig you out. Uh, Another important point he brought up was, um, you know, that it's important for those around us, if you think about uh, trainees, for instance, to see that we're supported uh, and that we're able to live uh, meaningful and joyous lives. Um, And uh, one last thing he mentioned I wanted to bring up was that, you know, we have to learn to create some boundaries um, in today's world, especially with emails and after hours work and and availability. And of course, that's, you know, something very intrinsic to the type of work we do. So I'm sure everybody has a different boundary. um, But, you know, to not set up any boundaries uh, can certainly, you know, blur the lines infinitely uh, between um, work activities and activities outside of work. So it was a good session overall. I think it was a nice way to open up the meeting. Uh, in 2021. So um, first scientific paper session was actually program highlights. So I do want to get through some of these. Uh, These were some of what the program committee, I guess, determined to be um, some of the key papers from the the meeting. So first one was uh, randomized control trial comparing operative and non-operative management of humeral diaphyseal fractures. So this was out of Canada. It's a randomized control trial, uh, ORIF versus functional bracing. And the ORIF group was 3-5 or 4-5 plates. They had 90 patients in each treatment arm. And DASH scores were better in the operative group at early time points. But by the time you got to 12 months, DASH scores were about the same. Um, They did have 15% non-union in the non-op group. Um... And, and, you know, those patients often had to cross over to the operative group. 
and then they had five radial nerve palsies, which I thought it was certainly lower than what we've seen in some other studies. Um, so that was nice to see. Um, that being said, non-operative management also, uh, what they found was that um, the, the fractures can take six to four to six months uh, to heal. So um, some of the takeaways from this were that um, we definitely see non-unions, right? Just another study showing that non-operative treatment, they don't all heal. So they had 15% non-unions and some of the crossover, but still at the end of the day, yet another study showing that, you know, when you measure outcomes out to 12 months, um, really no difference in outcome between operative and non-operative management. So, you know, I think that's some useful information to take to your uh, practices. Second uh, paper was, is the use of bipolar hemiarthroplasty over monopolar hemiarthroplasty justified? Uh, so this is a randomized control trial also. Long story short, no difference in outcomes using the outcome measures they um, chose. Um, so, you know, if bipolar designs decreased acetabular erosion, it's just, you know, doesn't seem to affect medium uh, or short to medium term clinical outcomes. All right, next paper, prospective randomized control trial containing uh, comparing sub-Q heparin and oral rivaroxaban for VTE prophylaxis in orthotrauma patients. So this was a um, prospective randomized control trial single center study in Tampa, um, 120 patients total. Um, so for a VTE study, you know, we're looking at VTE events, probably not as big as it, you know, could be to really detect differences. Um, so there was no difference in VTE or bleeding events, but I, I think, you know, some of the comments and questions, and I, certainly what I would say is that, you know, for, for looking at certainly VTE adverse event outcomes, you know, it, it's a small study. But some of the important things they also noted, though, were that, um, and, and, and keep in mind, this was all orthotrauma patients who had surgery. So this is not one single group. So it does a little bit of a heterogeneous, heterogeneous um, patient population here. But, you know, this is, um, you know, but this is how the study was designed. Um, certainly cheaper, right? Much cheaper to do the um, oral uh, route rather than the um, injection group. And um, satisfaction, patient satisfaction was better with the oral group uh, as well, uh, as you might expect. So, but I think it's good to see this because uh, a lot of us have wondered, um, hey, can we just use, you know, if we don't want to use aspirin, can we use something like rivaroxaban if we don't want to go with inject with like um, Lovenox for, you know, three or four weeks post-op. Next paper. Um, Intraoperative hematoma block decreases pre-op pain and narcotic consumption after IM rotting of femoral shaft fractures, randomized control trial. Generally, what I would say about this paper was that, um, you know, they significantly decreased pain in opioid consumptions compared to saline controls, and it was found to be safe. So, I mean, this is something to possibly consider um, in your practice. Um Next paper was a definitive flap coverage within 48 hours of definitive fixation reduces deep infection rate in open tibia fractures requiring flap coverage. This was a multi-center, multinational study. 
Um, and uh, what they say is the largest report focusing on timing of definitive fixation um, to flap coverage in type 3B open tibia shaft fracture. So the question is, you know, once you fix a type 3B open tibia fracture, how quickly do you need to make sure that they get definitive coverage? And what they found that safe window is, you know, about 48 hours. So you want to try to, you know, get your flap done within that time frame. Next one was operative versus non-op treatment of severely shortened or comminuted clavicle fractures in older adolescent athletes, prospective multicenter level two cohort study. So again, this is a prospective multicenter cohort of uh, these clavicle fractures in adolescent athletes. So of course in adults, there's been a big you know, move towards you know, operative management of these displaced, uh, severely shortened fractures. But in this age group, they really found no difference um, in um, patient-reported outcomes or um, in recovery between non-op and operatively treated patients at two years. Um, so, you know, what they concluded was that you can get excellent outcomes in adolescent athletes with non-op management in these clavicle fractures. Next highlight paper was risk of iatrogenic sciatic nerve injury during posterior acetabular fracture fixation. Does patient positioning matter? So they looked at two level one academic trauma centers. Uh, there were 16 surgeons, 922 posterior approaches for acetabular fixation. And they had this question that, um, you know, is there a difference in iatrogenic nerve injury depending on how you position the patient, like prone versus lateral? And, um, you know, what they found was that um, the prone position actually had higher prevalence of iatrogenic sciatic nerve palsy compared to lateral position when you adjusted for other risk factors. So interesting. A little bit um, contrary to some other previously reported data. Next paper was the effect of anterior support screws for unstable femoral trochanteric fractures, a multicenter randomized control trial. This one's a bit hard to describe uh, by podcast, but basically um, what they suggested was that, you know, this new technique of putting a screw anterior to the nail could help prevent loss of reduction, especially on your lateral x-ray. And you know, in, in their study, they didn't see much difference in reduction loss on the AP view, but in a lateral view, there was a, uh, a significant difference. So again, this is something that really might need to see, uh, you know, the images and when this, when this paper's published, um, uh, the, those details to fully understand this one. I'm not going to go through too many of the papers and all of the other um, sort of anatomic specific uh, sessions. Uh, those of you who are really interested, you, know, you can go to the OTA uh, website, uh, check out the um, online version of the meeting, and you can get you know pretty much your access to all of the material. But I do want to go through some of the interesting uh, sessions, uh, at least that I attended, that I thought um, um, would be worth sharing. So the pelvic and acetabulum case session is always uh, pretty highly attended. They've, you know, the last few years, they've moved this out now from a breakout room into like the main lecture hall because it's always oversubscribed. So um, 
couple interesting points from the case uh, session that was discussed. A um, lot of discussion about um, uh, fluoroscopic stress views. Uh, a lot of discussion um, about like lateral compression type one injuries and sort of the heterogeneity there. And uh, my takeaway from this session was that a um, little bit of difference of opinion. And I, it seemed to me that, you know, between some of the um, uh, older um, surgeons on the panel versus some of the younger surgeons on the panel, and it seemed that um, you know, and in the audience as well. Uh, I think this was reflected where I think uh, some of the older surgeons of the panel were able to kind of explain, demonstrate, show examples of you know, a lot of cases that um, some of the other surgeons were saying would require an EUA or would require early um, percutaneous fixation to mobilize them. And uh, they showed that um, in many of those cases that was not necessary. So I guess, you know, it seems like um, we're still not totally clear on the role of uh, fluoroscopic exam under anesthesia, like what are the parameters we should use? You know, we have these numbers that we look at, you know, when we were trying to measure instability, where those numbers come from. Um, seemed like there was definitely not clarity um, on how we should be um, uh, using these the stress views, especially in some of these um, you know, like LC1 type injuries, even determining, you know, um, mobilization, for instance, like at what point, you know, do you decide that a patient is having too much pain and is not mobilizing? You know, what do you consider to be mobilizing so that you decide when to pull the trigger on um, doing fixation on an LC1 fracture? So th these were questions I found that were debated and didn't seem to come to a consensus about. So it seemed to me that one of the future directions here might be to help, you know, establish the parameters for uh, an EUA. Um, because I think if we know this better, we can help apply, you know, that to our patients, understand, you know, when the test is necessary um, and, you know, that it truly indicates um, clinically significant instability that, can be improved with fixation. Then they had this uh, symposium called Hot Off the Press, Latest Randomized Control Trials That Can Change Your Practice. Um, so a lot of these topics were actually not new papers um, from the annual meeting, but these were somewhat recent papers that the program committee decided were worth discussing and highlighting. So I'll go through these relatively quickly. One was on flail chest injuries. Does surgery improve outcomes? So this was Canadian Orthopedic Trauma Society, a study of op versus non-op, 15 sites, seven years, 100 patients in each arm. And um, results are a little bit, um, I would say, not particularly overwhelming. Uh, there was a trend towards improved um ventilator-free days with surgery, but it wasn't statistically significant. There was no difference in ICU days. There was minimal benefit for non-vented patients. So basically what I would say is not exactly overwhelming evidence in favor one way or the other here. Next paper that was discussed was uh, what's the verdict on vancomycin powder, right? If you throw it into a, an operative wound, does it help decrease infection? So this was 
um, the metric Vanco trial, which was published in JAMA Surgery in March 2021, um, you know, what that did find was that there was no effect on gram-negative infections, but a 50% decrease in infection with gram-positive organisms. Yeah, they went from like 8.4 down to 4%. Um, it seemed to be safe, especially it was safe renally. There was no obvious kidney injury, although the study itself was just slightly underpowered. Another paper was, should I recommend routine vitamin D supplementation to my patients? Is it going to improve fracture union? Um, so they, long story short, they found that it doesn't really seem to show a significant improvement. If you look at rust scores or other ways to assess fracture healing, um, looking at multiple dosing schedules, there's really no change in fracture healing. Um, so you know, a little disappointing to hear that, uh, cause I know it is an intervention that a lot of surgeons, um, will recommend and you know patients are always looking for something what can i do to help my fracture heal faster so unfortunately it may not be routine vitamin d supplementation what about negative pressure wound therapy is it worth it you know, when you use it for open fractures does it does it work is it worth the cost so uh, this was a study done in the uk um, they overall had a pretty low infection rate um, with open fractures about 7.6 percent uh, wasn't a whole lot of evidence that there's clinical or cost benefit for negative pressure wound therapy in open fractures. Um, they, there were some issues with the study. They had a little bit of a hard time standardizing what the exact control group was. It was mostly wet to dry dressings, but again, not overwhelming support for negative pressure wound therapy. What about syndesmotic injuries? Should I use a tightrope instead of screws? So they cited several recent studies in the last few years. Each one is slightly different. Uh, these studies have about 100 patients each, give or take. And um, But the studies do support the use of um, a tightrope for improved function and radiographic results. Um, so I think, you know, even with the um, sort of, um, you know, establishment and the orthopedic trauma community, I think you are seeing a little bit of a move towards um, uh the uh, suture button type fixation for these injuries. So another question comes up all the time, cephalomedullary nails or hip fracture fixation. Can I use a long, or can I use a short nail? Or does it have to be long? So this came up a bunch of times during the meeting. And at least in this session, you know, they focused on a uh, 2019 randomized control trial at the Mayo Clinic, 80 patients in each arm, AO31A fractures, excluded subtruck extension. So they really found no difference in function at one year, right? Reoperation rates were similar, um, you know, maybe lower length of stay with short nails, um, probably wasn't powered to identify the rates of peri-implant distal fractures, right? This is the one of the things we really want to know. Um, and later on in this meeting, there was actually a paper presented in which when you looked out to two years, there was a higher rate of peri-implant distal fractures with short nails compared to long. So I left the meeting not really sure, you know, what the answer is on this topic. Another topic uh, discussed quite a bit was, um, and in this session was hip fractures in the elderly. Does total hip have better outcomes compared to hemiarthroplasty? So um, this was uh, 
discussed uh, looking at hip fracture surgery out to two years. Um, here, I believe they were um, citing the HEALTH trial, uh, which is a large multi-center randomized control trial. Um, in this study, the surgeons had to have expertise in both THA and HEMI. They had about 700 patients in the total hip, 700 patients in the HEMI group, 85% uh, two-year follow-up, not bad. Interestingly, no difference at 24 months between the two groups. Now, total hips had a higher incidence of perioperative medical events, but in terms of functional outcomes, not a lot of differences. So this is interesting. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out in the next few years because you know, we certainly talked about you know, the potential advantages in certain patient populations. And in this uh, in the meeting, they looked at a subset of the health trial um, presented later in the meeting that actually showed even if you look at the fittest patients, um, that is those who were physiologically young, right? Um, in the trial, there were really no differences in outcomes at two years. Um, so the question is, you know, when do you, to why, when and why do you need to do total hips and, and, and elderly hip fractures? So this, this, this kind of left a question mark in my head, and I'm not sure exactly uh, where, we're, where we're headed here. Of course, lots of other papers in a lot of the other sessions. I do want to mention a couple of posters I thought were interesting that you could very, I could very easily describe to you, and you can probably take your practice. One was uh, from Denver Health, and it looked at this concept of percent of normal. Right, a pragmatic patient-reported outcome measure for orthopedic trauma clinics. So, you know, a lot of us want to sort of gather patient-reported outcomes. We want to figure out how can we use these, you know, instruments in our clinics. How does it work with our workflow? Who's paying for it? Who's collecting the data? I know in a lot of busy clinics, it's easier said than done. So what they showed was that, you know, if you simply ask the patient, how would you rate yourself if 100% is back to normal? That that and it's a it's something that I think most patients get when you phrase you know put it put it put their outcome uh, question in in that type of a phrase people can think about it and give you an answer um, and they found that uh, it had moderate to strong correlations with some of you you know outcome scores like Quick Dash and SF12 etc. Um, so I think you know if you considered using that in your practice. It probably doesn't add much time. It's probably something, it gives you a numerical score um, and possibly could be used um, for those of us who have a hard time systematically gathering outcomes data. Another interesting poster I saw was um, uh, from um, University of Utah looking at um, Again, outcomes focused on patient expectations and sort of, you know, their one question um, uh, was on a scale of zero to 100, how likely do you believe you are able to return to your previous level of function with zero being no expectation and 100 being, you know, full expectation to return to previous function? Um, and they found that... Um, you know, to, in, in, in many instances, this did help to predict outcomes. 
Um, so interestingly, then, you know, are some outcomes driven by intrinsic patient factors, right? Um, it's probably be good to know and to ask your patient that and uh, see if that, you know, correlates with, with outcomes in your patients. So again, a lot of other paper sessions. Um, there are, of course, a ton of posters. I encourage you to check out the OTA website if you want to see some of the um, you know, details of the meeting. One other symposium I want to just briefly mention before we wrap up was Symposium 3, which was how can we fix racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic healthcare disparities in orthopedics? And do these disparities exist in orthopedic trauma? So they introduced the OTA Diversity Committee, uh, went over their mission statement and goals, uh, talked about um, some of the statistics and current orthopedic training. Um, some of the points I took away from this was that you know there certainly have been an increase in women in orthopedic residency programs, but that increase has kind of tapered off a little bit. So we've made some progress, especially... Um, you know, from 20 years ago, um, but in more recent years, that progress has kind of stalled a little bit. Uh, they discussed some of the general health disparities seen in our uh, in our different patient populations and the, some of the facts that we need to be aware of. And um, I think they tried to get us to confront um, some of the issues. So, for instance, you know, many of us say that we you know we want to treat all patients the same. Um, the fact is the numbers say otherwise, you know, even things like insurance type has been shown to affect how often we operate on things like clavicle and humerus fractures. And other studies have shown there are lower rates of operative treatment of uh, certain minorities and uh, women. A couple of other interesting concepts I thought were brought up, um, one being that diversity is a measurement. Uh, you can look at a department and just you know, on paper, you could, or I guess maybe in photographs, you could see how diverse they are. But inclusion is a culture, and that's not something you can necessarily see on a website, for instance. And um, I think they stress the importance of that. Uh, definitely discussed the concept of implicit bias. And for those of you who want to take an in, want to take their own test, you go to implicit.harvard.edu slash implicit, and you may be surprised of the findings. I encourage you to do that. Finally, I think there was a really good comment um, brought up by one of the um, participants in the audience that said, maybe cultural humility is a better term than cultural competence, right? We hear so much about cultural competence, and it almost you know, indicates that, you know, you have this sort of you know, competence or mastery over the subject um, when that's not really what we're trying to do and you can't do it. Um, so cultural humility, I thought that was a great um, uh, way to rephrase that. And um, I wanted to mention that. So it was a great symposium. I don't think it's, uh, you know, the last we're going to hear about that. And um, again, a lot of other great papers at the meeting. Encourage you to check it out at ota.org, and uh, certainly you can get a package to uh, basically view the meeting online at your convenience. So that'll wrap it up for this episode. Thanks for tuning in.